You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm joined today by Dr. Ian Jacobs, the medical director for the Center of Pediatric Airway Disorders in the Division of Otolaryngology, also at CHOP. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Strider. Thank you, Katie. Good morning. Thanks. It's a pleasure. So the first question I wanted to jump in with is that obviously the most common cause of Strider, which um, we see most commonly in primary care, is croup. And croup is most common in children roughly between 6 and 36 months of age, which is about the same time um, that we see foreign body aspirations. While croup is often accompanied by fever and viral symptoms, the presentation can be similar, especially because we know that kids in daycare often have fever and viral symptoms. So what are some key signs and symptoms that we should use to distinguish between the two? Well, usually it starts with the history. And with foreign body, there's often a history of choking or some uh, some initial event which uh, was concerning for possible aspiration. Um, however, there are times when that event is not witnessed, and that could happen in daycare with small parts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can be there can be a lot of overlap in a foreign body lodged in the airway or even in the esophagus in a very small infant can cause croup-like symptoms. Often with croup, however, on the other hand, there's a lot of uh, um, pre-existing um, uh, infectious symptoms, viral symptoms, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and a congested nose and other signs of a viral illness that are preceding it. Mm-hmm. Right. So good history is key in, in distinguishing that for the most part. Correct. We do a lot of anticipatory guidance in primary care and routinely discuss choking hazards. What are some of the most common and or the most dangerous foreign body ingestions that you see in ENT? Okay. I'll start with the most dangerous because that's the most important. Obviously, in a child less than two years of age before their molars have come in and when they have a very small laryngeal airway, we want to keep them away from dangerous foreign bodies. That would include Mm -hmm. things like grapes, large candies, Mm -hmm. hot dogs, anything cylindrical that can get obstructed or stuck in the larynx Mm -hmm. and cause complete upper airway obstruction. And that's something that wouldn't go down into the tracheobronchial tree but will get stuck and cause an immediate obstruction. Mm -hmm. And that's the most common cause of death from foreign body aspiration would be choking on on an object such as a hot dog. Mm -hmm. Many of these children may not even make it to the hospital. Mm -hmm. The most common foreign bodies we see that end up in the emergency room and going to the operating room are vegetable matter and nuts Mm -hmm. in in kids that are less than two years of age. So I would advise parents probably not give... um, nuts and um, very large pieces of vegetable matter without cutting it up Mm -hmm. in kids who are less than two years of age and don't have their molars that have come in yet. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a number of other (coughs) dangerous foreign bodies to keep away from too, and one of them is also button batteries, which uh, I'd like to say more about. Yeah, and button batteries, it seems like I'm finding more and more in lots of things around my house even. Even when you you don't think you're buying them, but they're in those greeting cards and they're in remote controls and electronic candles. So what do you tell parents in terms of 
keeping that safe. Well, button batteries are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Yeah. Like, um, for instance, there's probably about three or four button batteries in this room powering right. your computer, my cell phone, and, and they're common in remote controls and things like that. So button batteries um, are are the lithium batteries and battery cells that power most electronic devices. Mm -hmm. And if they're swallowed into the esophagus of a, of a, of a toddler or an, an infant, mm -hmm. they can lead to a severe injury in just under two hours, sometimes mm -hmm. in, in as long as one hour. Wow. And it's the negative side of the battery that generates electricity, which then breaks down water to alkali to uh, cause severe caustic injury of the esophagus. Mm -hmm. And some of those injuries could be deadly, mm -hmm. uh, can lead to perforation into the aorta and a massive fatal bleed, can lead to a, a large opening into the airway or vocal cord paralysis. Mm -hmm. So I advise parents uh, never let children get these batteries near them at any time. Keep them away from children at all times. And if you suspect that the child has ingested a, a button battery, get them to the emergency room as soon as possible. Right, great. Moving back to croup a little bit, the ED at CHOP has a pathway which is um, publicly available and we can direct people to that, but it includes dexamethasone for those triaged as mild and racemic epi plus dex for those who are triaged as more severe. So given that both sides of this pathway include dexamethasone, should we be giving that to all children who have croup in primary care? Yeah, I would never advise to give something to all children. Mm -hmm. In other words, steroids can be overused by families and parents. So I, I would advise steroids only for s more severe cases of croup at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the time, for the most co common mild cases of croup, I would advise the parents to take the child into a steamy room, like outside of a shower, mm -hmm. and um, let them inhale some of the, the hot, steamy uh, air and then take them out someplace cool, either a refrigerator opening in the summer mm -hmm. or, out, or open a door to the outside in the winter and let them inhale the cool air. Mm -hmm. And that could clear the, the mucus. It's really the, the onlay of thick uh, mucus when a child has an upper respiratory infection that causes the croup and it infects the uh, larynx and the upper airway and gives that bark-like, seal-like cough that mm -hmm. children will express. And it's fairly a common condition, common cause. Mm -hmm. Are some kids more prone to croup than others, or should we consider an alternative diagnosis when we see that a kid has had multiple episodes of croup? So if I see a one-time event of croup in a child less than two, I'm not too concerned if it's a mild case. Mm -hmm. However, if I see a pattern of recurrent croup mm -hmm. occurring multiple times um, with every upper respiratory tract infection, then I get a little concerned. Mm -hmm. The most important factor is they may have an underlying anatomical problem, such as a narrowed airway, mm -hmm. that can predispose them to getting croup. So if you have a narrowed airway in a child, then they get a cold, a little mucus covers that narrowed airway, and they get croup-like symptoms every time they get a cold. So mm -hmm. that child would need to be investigated and have probably endoscopy when the croup is resolved. Mm. Um, the other thing, the other um, alarm or, or uh, flag is a child that's very young that starts getting croup. Let's say an mm -hmm. infant that's less than six months of age. It would mm -hmm. be unusual for a child of that age to get croup. And if that presented to me, I would be concerned that other things are going on, such as uh, a, um, a severe stenosis, mm -hmm. an airway problem, or even a foreign body in the esophagus can present primarily with croup. Mm.
since you're talking about the uh, the younger group, another common cause of Strider is laryngomalacia. So what are some ways that we can distinguish laryngomalacia from more pathologic causes that you mentioned, like malformations? Yeah. And, and, that, and that, to me, is in my practice, where I don't see uh, sick kids for sick visits, but mm -hmm. I see more common referred uh, uh, referred patients for airway symptoms. Uh, laryngomalacia is the most common cause of, of uh, strider in, in, in my outpatient clinic mm -hmm. and um, it's it's very common it can range from very mild to very severe mm -hmm. and uh, we would like we like to see those patients and evaluate them and first of all um, uh, just make sure that the strider is really coming from laryngomalacia mm -hmm. so I like to confirm that they have laryngomalacia and I do that by performing a flexible laryngoscopy in the office and then seeing the laryngomalacia, the parents see it up on the screen. Mm -hmm. So it's edu educational. We give them a handout on the management and, and treatment of laryngomalacia. And in most cases, it resolves by 18 to 24 months of age. Mm -hmm. In more severe cases where there's failure to thrive, sleep apnea symptoms at night, or lo uh, hypoxia, loss of oxygen, mm -hmm. um, we, we suggest that they need a further workup and, and sometimes they will require surgery. Mm -hmm. So there's not a way for us clinically in primary care to diagnose the laryngomalacia without you actually scoping them? Yeah, it's hard to be certain of it. And there's occasional cases where I think it's laryngomalacia, mm -hmm. and it turns out to be something else. Right. For instance, um, it might be a subglottic stenosis or vocal cord paralysis mm -hmm. that's masquerading as croup. I've even seen a volecular cyst that was mm -hmm. initially diagnosed as croup from another uh, uh, otolaryngologist, mm. and they missed a, a, a mass uh, at the base of the epiglottis that was compressing the epiglottis. Mm. So um, it, I think it's important to scope these kids, mm -hmm. uh, unless it's a very, very slight or mild case and you think it's getting better uh, over a short period of time. Anything that's substantial, we like to see and confirm that it is due to laryngomalacia mm -hmm. and make sure there's nothing else going on in the airway. And then we further triage the most severe cases to undergo further workup and possible surgery. Mm -hmm. And I've seen sometimes kids who have referred for laryngomalacia come back on uh, Zantac or ranitidine for mm -hmm. GERD. So how commonly does GERD exacerbate laryngomalacia and should that be something that we think more about in primary care? Yeah, that's the whole chicken versus the egg argument, which mm -hmm. comes first. And uh, in, in my view, I think that the um, the laryngomalacia is making it harder to breathe. There's increased airway resistance, which leads to increased intra-abdominal pressure and more more severe reflux symptoms, which are still mm -hmm. common in that age group. Uh, we treat it commonly. I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference unless there's significant esophagitis or laryngeal inflammation from the reflux. And um, But I would see that a lot of kids uh, are, are treated with something mild like Zantac who have laryngomalacia. Mm -hmm. um, I can't really comment on the efficacy of uh, that sort of treatment. Mm -hmm. okay. um, besides reflux, sometimes we'll get a history in primary care of noisy breathing that's immediately during or after feeding. Are there other things that we should consider about the airway if we hear this um, association with noisy breathing and feeding? Sure. And we always want to be certain there's not, not something else going on in the airway. Mm -hmm. So if they had noisy breathing that was exacerbated by feeding, I would be concerned with something like a vascular ring or mm -hmm. something lower down, 
which could be more dangerous and require more intervention than just simple laryngomalacious. So um, anytime there's uh, something that's a little different, problems with feeding, um, cyanosis with feeds, um, uh, exp expiratory symptoms, expiratory wheezing, I, uh, I like to, to work up the lower airway as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I might order airway fluoroscopy with a, with a, uh, a barium swallow. I look for a complete vascular ring, and in some cases, I might complete uh, uh, microlaryngoscopy and bronchoscopy. Mm -hmm. For these infants with laryngomalacia and noisy breathing during feeding, is there anything imaging-wise that we should order before sending to ENT, or is it more helpful to send them to you and then have you decide what kind of workup is needed from there? Like, mm -hmm. should we start with a chest X-ray or something? Yeah, I don't find chest X-ray is helpful. Sometimes an AP and lateral neck X-ray mm -hmm. is helpful for kids with recurrent croup who have had a history of croup. Mm -hmm. um, and it's best to do the X-ray when they're not sick. In other words, if they if they have acute croup, any child with croup is going to have narrowing right. on the X-ray. Right. So it's better to do the X-ray or send them for it when the croup is resolved and they've returned to their baseline. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing to look for subglottic narrowing um, or some pre-existing anatomical problem in the airway, mm -hmm. especially if they had a history, a history of being premature, being intubated, having had previous cardiac surgery, anything mm -hmm. that could be predispo predisposing to subglottic stenosis mm -hmm. or other uh, other symptoms. The other the other area of child that I would be concerned with recurrent croup would be a child with a cutaneous hemangioma, mm, right. uh, where they could have a uh, uh, fifty percent of those children could have a hemangioma in their upper airway and their subglottis. Mm -hmm. So in that child, I would want to get some type of imaging and consultation to rule out a subglottic hemangioma. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have to be a hemangioma that on the surface is near the airway, it could be like remote from the airway? An, a large number of children who have uh, cutaneous hemangiomas on the scalp or the neck uh, could also have a, pre, uh, an, a hemangioma that, that they were born with mm -hmm. in their airways, usually just in the subglottis, just mm -hmm. below the vocal cords. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the main presenting symptoms could be strider and recurrent croup mm -hmm. with, uh, with a subglottic hemangioma. So, you know, if a child came to me and they had um, multiple uh, cutaneous hemangiomas and they were having croup, I would want to scope mm -hmm. them and maybe get an AP and lateral neck x-ray to work them up for subglottic hemangiomas. If I found something on the scope or x-ray, then I might further investigate it with a full microlaryngoscopy and bronchoscopy mm -hmm. and then uh, consider treatment of uh, uh, therapy, including propanolol, mm -hmm. uh, which is a beta blocker to treat the, the subglottic hemangioma be before it becomes symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what's new in the airway clinic and what you're doing in your research. Oh, that's great, Katie. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, we, um, we were recently awarded the Frontiers Grant from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's an awesome uh, opportunity to uh, expand our program, mm -hmm. and this is a, a multi- a multidisciplinary grant which um, is a programmatic expansion of the clinical arm of the practice and, mm -hmm. the, and the airway center um, as well as uh, translational research and innovation. Um, 
We, um, we are expanding our clinical outreach as, as a national and international program. Mm -hmm. We're seeing um, uh, kids from all over the country with upper airway problems and treating them. Mm -hmm. We have a very large multidisciplinary center. We've added clinicians through the expansion, Great. including nurse practitioners and, and um, database managers and coordinators. We work closely with the speech and swallow team as well as with gastroenterology mm -hmm. and pulmonary medicine. Um, in addition, we're uh, embarking on uh, new and exciting modes of research and mm -hmm. translational research. Um, we're looking at tissue engineering for improving um, biomaterials and cartilage grafts for laryngotracheal reconstruction, mm -hmm. treatment of vocal cord paralysis, um, and um, treatment of uh, button battery injuries as well. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. It's very exciting. And um, we want to continue to amplify this and really um, create a world-renowned program in pediatric airway disorders. Mm -hmm. Great. And so if people in the CHOP system want to refer to you, we have a pretty clear way to do that. But for anyone who's listening outside of CHOP, is there an easy way that they can refer patients to your program? So if a patient was... Um, interested in being referred to airway or if a, an outside provider wanted to refer a patient, they would call our main uh, office number at 215-590-3440 and ask to be connected to the airway um, pod and they would speak to one of our airway coordinators. The, the patients would likely then be triaged by our uh, nurse practitioners mm -hmm. and they would, uh, the parents would receive a phone call interview and they would get all their medical information, their medical records, and then we would actually have a conference on them before they arrive. So when they get here, mm. they would be seen by multiple services and we would know what tests and studies to do when they're here. And a lot of that would be arranged for a uh, one day, one, you know, one, one day uh, visit where they would get everything done when they're here. Great, so very centralized patient-centered care, it sounds like. Yes, and, you know, and, our, and our nurse pr practitioners are fantastic at um, figuring out problems and making it uh, good for families. We also have a very uh, important uh, airway uh, social worker mm -hmm. who helps uh, smooth out some of the visits, for, especially from uh, long-distance patients, mm -hmm. and, and helps with the arrangements for uh, getting care at, at CHOP. Great. Well, thank you so much for wow, introducing you, us to all this. Uh, it was a pleasure thanks. talking with you this morning. And um, I look forward to helping anyone out there with uh, children with airway disorders. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.